I didn't turn the recording on for that. I just <laughs> Well, thanks. I'm glad it gives us the signal because Yeah. You yeah. can leave if you want. You don't have to stay. <laughs> it's all good. So, before we get started, I want to show you something. So this shirt right here, you can't read it because the, the writing's illegible. Um, but it, it was our uh, it's my uh, my college band. What like, is the name? Formerly oh. formerly known. Nice. We had like seven names and we kept changing it. And every time we play at the Sun Club, we we're like, oh, this is Marmoset. We were known as Marmoset at one point. Formerly known as like this other band. And I was like, we should just call ourselves Formerly Known. I like that. That's cool. Sounds like Josh. This is I my formerly, formerly known address. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Whiteness in America podcast featuring Tom Bell, Josie Cardamona. Hello. And Joshua Trinidad. Thank you for joining us. That was really good, Josh. Formerly known as what? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, can't I love it. you guys. This is awesome. <laughs> Felt like we had, it's been a month. I think it has been a month. It's been a month. Yeah. Yeah. Thank Before we get guys. started, uh, we should talk about how long it's been. Yeah, for sure. It's been a month. <laughs> it's been a month. And it's Josh's fault because he's like touring the world. I'm not right now. I'm just sitting here, just practicing. Yeah. Do you have any new music coming out soon? You know. Or are you not allowed to talk about it? I can talk about it a little bit. I'm going back to Norway. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. October. Nice. And we're going to record another trio record. Cool. So that'll be exciting, but it's like hard to travel right now, as you all know. Yeah. So now it's like, it's more of a game. Like, can I travel and not get sick? Because now it's like everything's in the air, right? Like, it's up to the, really, it's up to the individual. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a minute. Because, yeah. you know, we just, we just had the, the in Florida, I think it was this week, the, there was a court case that struck down the mask mandates on public transportation. And so, as you pointed out, Josh, everything is back to the individual frame which some, including me, would argue that that is really steeped in white supremacy because that's the, this construct and concept of individualism is the way that we've constructed it here in the United States really just benefits those with privilege um, and lets everyone else kind of flounder for the folks that don't have access to good healthcare, folks that don't have access to um, treatment, folks that don't have access to personal transportation of their own they have to take public transportation they're now at the whim of everyone else and so i i was i'm really just appalled by the fact that we're we're now continuing to move back into the operate operationalizing as a country back in the individual frame i mean we never really left let's be honest there was like a two-week period where maybe maybe people were like hey we're a community we can do things and now we're we're really back into it again so Curious as your thoughts on that, um, you know, before we get into the meat of our critical race theory episode number two tonight. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's going to disproportionately affect um, people of color, black, indigenous, brown, people of color who have to take public transportation, who work in airports, right? So now it's really incumbent upon them to continue wearing the masks 
but we know that that's only um, somewhat effective, right? If we all continue to wear masks, we can lower the transmission, but. We'll be right back in a brief moment. And now back to our show. All right, so let's so let's talk let's about intersectionality. In. Yeah, let's jump into there. So one of the there big, the big there we go. That's a good transition. <laughs> so like in music, that's what when like when you have like a, a part and then you have another part and they don't go together and you're just like, fuck it, we're gonna stop. And, <laughs> and someone's gonna play something weird in the middle, and then we're gonna jump to that next section. Yeah. Without like the smooth trend. Josh, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, My band teacher did that to yeah. us. He goes, I think they deserve another chance. <laughs> and I was like, stop. Turns the audience, they deserve another chance from the beginning. <laughs> so, I'll leave some of it in. Um, so, uh, one of the main tenets. So, last time we talked about a couple of the tenets of critical race theory. Tonight, we're going to talk about intersectionality. Um, which includes, I think, some of the things that have been happening around the country. Um, most recently, the confirmation hearings for Justice Brown Jackson, um, which is really exciting. So, uh, but yeah, so intersectionality, Kimberly Crenshaw coined this term. Um, it's used in critical race theory as one of the kind of pieces to kind of examine how race still is a main focus, but the other factors of our identities play into that. So uh, where do you all want to start with the construct of intersectionality? Well, I think it's important for us to clarify, because I think sometimes people will take intersectionality and I think it's, it's highly misunderstood in the sense that um, they'll talk about just various, various identities, but it has to be linked to race and it has to be linked to a level of oppression that you face. Right. So like, layered upon layered oppression. Right. And it's not, it's not like oppression Olympics. It's just saying that my complex, my identity and my experience in workforce, um, discrimination potentially can be very different from yours. Um, Josh and Tom, because not only am I female or woman, gender woman, but I also am a Brown woman. And so um, the example that Crenshaw uses and is, to our earlier conversation, you also have a chronic illness. Correct. Right. So like that compounds, right. When we're talking about public health, for example, right. right Correct. Like so context and, is important too, like the, the system or structure along with the identities. For yeah. sure. Yeah. And I think that, um, one of the ways in which I really enjoy Kimberly Crenshaw's TED talk on say her name, because I think it helps identify like how invisible black women are in the conversation of police brutality as a major example of how, and it's not to diminish the brutality that are faced by black men. It's just a matter of if black men are facing so much police brutality, right? And we hear of a few cases um, and we'll talk a little bit later in the podcast um, about this. Women in that pot in her TED talk, most people don't know their names, right? And would be really surprised to learn that the occurrence of violence against Black women by at the hands of police officers is incredibly high. 
but the media doesn't find their stories to be newsworthy. So we don't learn about them. Very similar to in my La Chicana course, I talk a lot about like, um, I'll use Gwen Arajo, a transgender woman who was brutally murdered and doesn't get nearly the same coverage, right? And understanding that let's say Matthew Shepard's case did, right? Both were horrific, but as a white male, Matthew Shepard's story is talked about quite a bit in the media, but we don't hear about like women of color, transgender women's murders, and yet their numbers continue to increase. And so for me, discussing intersectionality is really critical because I think that we have to understand how the system layers oppression upon oppression upon oppression. And so, as you mentioned earlier, if we were to really dissect the system and dismantle it to address the needs of the most marginalized, then we could make real change in our community. Um, But we need to first understand how the system works and how intersectionality plays into that. I think that that's one of the things that is a huge flaw of DEI work in general is the way that <clears throat> trainers and Josh, you're a trainer. So you can, you can kind of talk to this too. I use the term trainer in air quotes, but this is a podcast. People can't see us. Um, but uh, <laughs> cause I'm a trainer as well. Uh, but you know, I think one of the things that the disservice that we've done to intersectionality is the identity wheel, for example, because what that does is allows me to see my, my identities, as single things, like uh, what's the word that Crenshaw uses? Uh, single, single access thinking, I think is what I've heard, right? So the whole, you know, this was really developed as a legal argument, right? Because I think there was a case where uh, I think it was a black woman was being discriminated against and the, the company said, we hire women. There's a lot of women that work here and we hire black folks. There's a lot of black folks that work here. And what they said is, well, what the argument was is that, well, yes, but there are no black women that work here that are getting, you know, the, like the oppression of black women far outweigh the oppression of other folks, right? So it became a legal argument when we need to start thinking about our identities as the interlocking pieces. And that's how this started <clears throat> from that point and then kind of took place from there. But, but I think a, a lot about this, you know, I get asked to do conversations around identity and I can't do them without doing an intersectionality approach to that. I can't address identities without thinking about these intersections. And I also like to think about it, not just the compounding oppressions, but the compounding privileges that come with identities too. So I like to think about it as both of those things and adding, as I said before, the contextualization of the environment and the space, because I might be walking into a space in one area where I have lots of compounding privileges and the context elevates that. And then I move into another space where I still have some compounding privilege but that particular context um, doesn't advantage those privileges in the same way. So it really kind of, it really adds to the complexity of how we talk about our experiences and the way that we navigate the world and the way the world navigates us. You know, Josh, what are your thoughts as a DEI person, um, how we think about identity and intersectionality? I don't know. I, it's, it's interesting because um, I think regionally because i i'm obviously a big broncos fan so i'm from denver okay from the southwest am i the southwest what am i midwest mountain west i call myself the southwest 
I mean, am I am I Josie? You would know. I do yeah, remember know. a lot of white folks wearing cowboy boots when I lived in Colorado. So I don't know what that means, but <laughs> I just remember that, was that, that being a, a thing in Fort Collins, anyway, which is yeah, northern Colorado. Right. I don't know. I feel like this discussion is like so so many facets to it. Like I I myself got confused working in New York. You know, with which is supposed to be supposed to be, you know, obviously like highly um, diverse place to be. Um, but I feel like it's really interesting. Like I almost feel like in, and this is just from my limited time there. Like almost like they have gone the distance with understanding differences and have gone back like we gave it a shot we tried this stuff we did it and now we're all going to segregate ourselves again and i feel like you know in a lot of regions that i've worked in we haven't even gone to that place yet so it's like when i'm working specifically in new york i'm thinking well how do i bring these folks back to the table to talk again because they claim they did this in the 80s when equality, equality was like the 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 hot, the hot topic, if you guys remember that. I don't remember. I was I wasn't born. Just, <laughs> <laughs> maybe somebody might know of that, but but equality was like this like this like this pillar that all businesses were gonna stand on. And New York, I felt like was one of those like places like we're like, we do equality here. And it's funny because I still hear that from some of the older folk that I work with generationally. So like, yeah, well, we do equality here. I'm like, yeah, but what about the next frontier? They're like, what's that? Well, the next frontier was inclusion, right? I just read something online about inclusion means dropping marginalized identities, people into a white supremacist society. So we're not doing the work to dismantle that white supremacist society. And so everything we're doing is just like surface level work. Exactly. I think. And that's how it feels. It feels like no training. I don't know. I have to try to try this discussion thing or what do you call it? Development? Programming. Programming. I'm going to try that. But it's always going to be it's always going to be surface level unless there's a level of accountability after the training and you stay on it. You got to stay, like, literally it's like a diet. Be like, Hey, how's your diet? What diet? Remember the diet we did the other day? Oh yeah. I was supposed to do that. Yeah. That's what a training is. But, but oh. Tom, you brought up a great point in a platica you did for my students where you said that we cannot, people of color cannot be limit liberated unless everyone is liberated. And white people need to be liberated from their ideology that white is right, right? That yeah, like, yeah. that yeah. whiteness is supreme and that they're willing to give up their privilege um, in an effort to truly bring about equity and social justice. Um, <laughs> I have an awkward tangent. Why is it that we white folks think that adding white white goo to a taco makes it supreme. Is that white supremacy? Ooh. Oh, interesting. 
Right. Sour cream. That's a terrible joke. But like, thinking about that, when you're did, like, you, did you just make that up? I did. You did, didn't Ooh. you? <laughs> yeah. Oh but I, man. But I. But you think about like that, and you think about like <laughs> well, all the dots. When you think about cultural appropriation, right? So like Taco Bell is clearly not real, real. Mexican food, right? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's the the it's it's whiteness right. wrapped in a tortilla. And then when you talk about what supreme means, like it is the addition of sour cream, which really isn't again culturally there, I don't think. Um no, we don't eat, Mexicans don't eat sour cream on their exactly. tacos. Right. So it's you like cilantro and onions. Right. So if you, if you go to a real taqueria, like what you're going to get is you're going to get very delicious uh, ingredients that are, because the flavors are amazing. Right. When you add or Americanize it or white, whiteify it, you're adding all this shit that you don't need. And then you want to say, Oh, this is supreme. I'm going to add some white (laughs) goo on it because it's going to be better that way. And I'm going to charge you more and tell you that it's better. Yep. Right. Like I, and, and that's what, like, if I was to create an analogy of like what whiteness is and how we buy Damn, into that's it, that's what one. it is. Yeah. But I think the other thing too, is like this concept of like, I was having a conversation with Scarlett, my daughter, she's six. For those of you that have never listened to the podcast before and are still with us. Um, she and I were talking about what, what being white is right. Cause she's, she's biracial, multiracial. And I was like, well, whiteness is not something to be proud of like being white exists only because it's been created to differentiate to separate to create power dynamics and when you think about why we why people buy into whiteness is because it is that currency element it is that thing that you want to maintain and so if just dei work is not purposeful in dismantling whiteness and white supremacy um, toxic masculinity, heteronormativity, it is pointless. So the work should be about giving folks the skills to dismantle the shit and get rid of the sour cream rather than have them do these like unconscious bias things because you're not going to get rid of the unconscious bias. Those are going to stay. You have to learn how to like deal with them, I suppose, but that's not going to do anything unless it's a regular practiced occurrence over time right yeah Um, and i think that that's that's just a huge disservice that we do and that's why i don't really want to do trainings anymore because i don't think they're effective actually this brings up a a really quick story it's fast i'll make it entertaining so is it about sour cream it's um yeah actually quite a bit (laughs) so i think i shared with you all i work for a company which i will not mention their name um, the, they felt that I was not allowed to work with the board in any type of DNI work, right? Like, basically, I was told you are only responsible for those from the CEO down, but your concern is not the board. And I said, Why? Like, why is that? And what's happened now is our CEO and the board have grown extremely apart. And the way that they understand race and inclusivity and and there's like this war now right like my ceo has put in a lot of work he's like he's actually fucking changing and he's like seeing the world so differently and i'm so proud of him actually i tell him that all the time like you're actually putting on the fucking work man like and that's why you feel weird because you're doing the right thing anyways 
the board hired a DNI person to train them. But not you. Paid, but not me. And who was it? It gets worse. It was a white man who called me to get my stuff from me to get my materials. He said, I need an hour of your time so I can see what you've been working on with the organization. So I didn't give him anything. I lied and I gave him a bunch of other shit. And he goes, so how did you get into this? And I said, I'm here for two, two things, to dismantle and disrupt. And he was like, whoa, really? Do they know that? And I'm like, yeah. This dude is like your, like, just like your, I was once this, but now I'm going to do DNI work type of guy that can come in and like check the box. We have to DNI. This dude is not in it for the right reasons. And so when he heard me talk like that, he's only in it for lucrative reasons. But anyways, here's the problem. This shit happens all the time. And when you come into these large organizations across the world, we think, wow, like, look, they've done DNI stuff and all, but who, like, who, what, like, what have they done? You know, like, at what point are they being held accountable? Like, where's, where's the line? And I'm telling you guys, like, this is New York City, like, one of the largest, like, companies in the region, maybe in the United States, and they didn't allow me to train the board. Well, but that's by design. Yeah. Oh, it's all totally by design. Yeah. And they're well, like, Let's and I would argue value. that historically, New York, even though it claims like diversity, if you really think about the boroughs and if you think about the way that it's set up, it's very much like Chicago. It's segregated, incredibly segregated. And I don't think yeah. that, <clears throat> um, I don't think that Brown versus Board of Education did anything other yeah. than right? Like as Derek Bell said, it was a huge example of entrance convergence, right? Like it yes. benefited white people more than it benefited the people of color who were um, receiving like shitty education. And who were they busing into the white neighborhoods, right? So who had to get up early and ride a bus to try and integrate into whiteness? So once again, their oh, yeah. concept of diversity in education was about, let me bring and drop black indigenous like brown people of color into your neighborhood and we're only going to do a little bit you're still going to remain like the majority but we're not ever going to bust like white wealthy kids into brown schools or black schools right so or, again or black curriculum right? oh yeah black, right black teachers and we're still going to teach you we're still going to teach you the curriculum we want which is completely whitewashed so i'm right. not surprised josh that that happened but i'm glad you didn't give them your your work i find it to be like did you talk to the ceo about it like what the fuck yeah i mean he's just like i mean there's a war literally between ceo and the board and the board and it's because he's doing the right things like he this guy is actually like came to me like you know some people that were like in our cohort you know like whoa they need some work like that <laughs> level you know and then suddenly they're like a tom and josie like working in that direction <laughs> like he's on the road to greatness. Like and I could feel it. Every article I thought of, he just don't eats it, eats it, eats it. And nope, like the board is like, nope, we're gonna hire this other guy at this rate. And I'm like, why would they do that? They have an expert right down the fucking hall. They can just call in to do this work with them. It just makes sense. Anyways, 
what I did give him was just like two slides on critical race theory. And he's like, do you really use this? I was like, yeah. And they know it's critical race theory. I'm like, why is this a big deal? And he's on a closet Trump supporter who's anti CRT. <laughs> yeah. He's anti CRT. He's doing DNI work in New York. He's white. It's getting weird. So I don't know. It's just, yeah, that's that happened. We'll be right back in a brief moment. And now back to our show. Really interesting question, though, that I have for the two So we've covered four now tenets of critical race theory. Mm-hmm. And and Josh, you're talking about this person who's like, do they really know that it's CRT? What is so controversial about critical race theory, in the sense that it, it and I and I get like the the, the talking point that's used. You know, and the, when we talk about the binary, the left versus the right, the left will say, well, it's just being used as a, a scare tactic. And I agree. But like, at what point is someone who is actually a learned human, can they sit down and say, out of the things that we've discussed thus far, what is really that bad about this? Is it the fact that they just are, again, so allegiant to the sour cream that that's what's scary to them? Yeah. And if that's the case, like that's, that's the problem. And that's why this will, that's why this will persist unless we use things like critical race theory and we use the dismantle and disrupt mm-hmm. framework mm-hmm. because otherwise this shit's not going to go away. It's no. just going to, going to continue to be flavored in a way that I don't know. Yeah. I'm done making food metaphors. Sorry. But like, so I just, <laughs> I'm loving it actually. Um, but I mean, what is, what is the value? What is the buy-in if white people don't see the value of giving up, right. And dismantling it, of course, this is what we're going to continue to do. This is the frustrating part of actually living in existence of not being white, right. Because we encounter a few people that, you know, a few mediocre white dudes like yourself, Tom, that we love, but, but everyone needs a token, and large, token yeah. mediocre white guy in that yeah. crew. But you just had three in yours, but John and Thomas, I think were a little bit more, more or less than mediocre. <laughs> they were steps above that. Um, <laughs> but I think, I mean, this is when I get like really kind of in the dark and twisties of like, will it ever change? Right. Because my existence, like my life doesn't change. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the system continues to be oppressive towards me and it's going to take a mass movement of people. Um, and so it makes me sad. So for every cop shooting that happens, um, the more shit just is the same, right? Like it's true, you know, so it doesn't matter if they're peaceful. So I'm using air quotations for our for our listeners, right? They're not burning shit down, you know, they're appropriately protesting if there's a such thing. Um, What's the proportional response for the death of somebody? Right. Like not justified, right. The non-justification, not the justification that you can justify death, but like, is there a proportional response for that? What are you? No. 
Right. And where's, where's the humanity of like watching people who look like you that look like my brother who look like my brother, Josh, like, like you don't think that's fucking traumatic for us to see that shit all the time. It's like, and then to see that nothing happens, nothing changes. I mean, Michigan still doesn't have fucking clean water. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Flint. Yeah. 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 Like, and so, so there are days when I'm like, it doesn't feel like anything can happen, no, that change can happen yeah. because my existence doesn't change. Well, and, and back to the, like the, the kind of like, what are the strategies that we have used to, to educate, to challenge? And it, it, it <laughs> and this gets at the point that we were talking about before we started today is in somewhat that we're brought up now is like all of the work that has been done. And I, I'm not discrediting it because I'm a product of it. I'm here because of that work, but like all of the work that has been done really centers white people. Um, so when I think about like one of the things that has been really a, a topic of discussion lately in my job is this, I hear it a lot. We need to make the business case for diversity. Right. <laughs> and so there's this, this person at, that I work with, he, he wrote this book called the business case for diversity. It's a white dude. And he talks about diversity in two ways. He talks about identity diversity and cognitive diversity. He says, you know, it's better for organizations and businesses to have this because when you think about diversity of thought, which is his cognitive diversity, organizations function better. And when you bring in more people, it's, it's, you know, it's better for the business. But the bottom line is about it's better for the owners. Who owns companies typically in America? Yeah. Who are the people that benefit? And it's not about the social justice case or the legal case for why we should diversify space, diversify organizations, diversify companies, why it's we should get line. Right. Why, why we do land acknowledgements in higher education, but we don't do land back in higher education because land back is too uncomfortable for us to have that conversation because of the, the benefit, right? Um, it, in the challenges. And that's, I think the thing that we're just, we're all hypocrites. If we continue to just talk about this in a way that doesn't add those two D's in, you have to disrupt and you have to dismantle in order to do that. You have to really start getting into and understanding the intersectional elements, tying this all back (laughs) to where we started of how it all impacts us as humans. And absolutely. Yeah. And I think the driving force behind all of that and why I think, Jesse, you feel the way you feel, and it's the same as I feel, is that, you know, I think about like the, and I talked about this with um, just the power of love. Like we think of love, um, you know, can that, can that ever go away? We hope not, but can we imagine a world without it? It'd be very scary. Um, and when I think about something equally as powerful as fear, I think that's what drives what we see in this world, obviously, is fear. And the reactions we see specifically from white folks, the white community, is that it's fear. It's a fear of challenging what they've always known, the, their epistemological concepts and makeup, right? It's, it's challenging every, their total existence. Mm-hmm. that's scary for, for, for them. They're like, wait a minute. Jesus wasn't white. 
I have all these pictures that show him as a white dude. Come on. You know, I don't know. It's a lot. It's a lot of fear. I'm not trying to make space for white folks. I'm trying to take space, but that's a lot of fear, though, that they're going to have to go through um, before they can. Well, and that reminds us that we have to do this through love, right? But it's hard to do it through love when you feel like there's no, there's not enough Toms in the world to make it worth like to make, to see significant change. Right. Like, I mean, I'll take my wins and the people that I work with, I do, but there are days when I'm just like, this sucks. This sucks really bad. And the worst part is that you can disrupt and you can dismantle and you can earn that reputation in your work life. Right. Um, but there are going to be people who look like me who are like, why are you making problems, dude? Why are you like, just go on, go, what is it? Go along to get along or get along to go along. And it's like, it's exhausting work. Right. And, and then immediately people personalize it. They're like, it's not me, right? Like I'm not the person who's harmed you. And I don't think they quite understand how harm works and being re-traumatized works. So Tom, you mentioned earlier, like I keep thinking of the, the activities where people are like, take a step forward if you had this and take a step uh-huh. forward if you, you know, your parents had an education, right? Well, you know what, as a person of color, like when those activities happened, it's like, you don't want to display to a group of people you don't know all the privilege you didn't have, right? I don't need to be reminded that I didn't have privilege growing up, right? Especially privilege that was linked to to just because of my race, right? Like just for being born white. Um, but I don't think there's that connection. And I think that's the missing part in this programming, right? How do we do that? How do we do programming that is impactful that gets people to understand this and for them to choose to be more self-reflective on their own and become active learners in this process, right? Because the other way, the training is all about compliance and what can I say, what can I not say? And then it becomes like this really us versus them situation. But how do you create programming that's impactful enough that someone says, oh shit, I really do need to change the way that I view the world and I need to learn and I need to take responsibility for my learning. That's a tall order. I think. Yeah. Uh, Well, I think part of it though, it gets back to, and we brought it up every episode since we've kicked back off is this concept of love. We brought it up today. An aspect of love is accountability, Mm. right? Like when I think about how I, how Christine and I love each other. There's accountability to us. Like there's accountability as a connected, as a connected group of people. I can't just be an asshole and then not, not be held accountable for that for the sake of the love that we help hold together. Right. So if I love somebody, it's not just me being kind. It's, it's having love that shows accountability. And I was reflecting on our last podcast when I started to do a fuck list, I was like, fuck this person, fuck this person. (laughs) <laughs> and I could, I could see someone coming at us saying like, oh, you, you talk about love and you just told someone to fuck off. Well, part of 
embracing love in all of its aspects is also naming the people that are creating trauma for people that you care about. And there's an accountability Mm -hmm. level in love. And I don't think that ever gets really talked about, but I think that's an important part. So as I start to think about programming, I think about maybe we need to have a better understanding of what we mean by love. And it's not just this touchy feely thing that you see in rom-coms. It's, it's Mm -hmm. deep and it's hard and it takes work. As you talked earlier, Josie, relationships are hard. We as human beings are hard to get along. We, We have a difficult time getting along and being vulnerable. And that takes trust. Those are all elements in love. And I think that that's the thing that I would go back to is how do you create love and community? What does that look like? And how do you create accountability for yourself and for others in a way that shows growth? And that's where you start. Absolutely. That makes so much sense. I think it also is an answer to like this cancel culture phenomenon that I see where people are like, oh, they're getting canceled. And it's like, no, maybe they're just being held accountable, right? (laughs) That's likely what it is. And yet it's so much easier to be like, oh, you're overreacting. Um, You know, we can't be, you know, we can't make jokes. We can't do this, but there's no accountability for the harm that those jokes make or the harm that is caused by um, the actions of someone, right? And that we just let people get away with stuff. I mean, I, I know I mentioned this before we started recording, but the, the entire Monica Lewinsky and Bill Gates, uh, Bill Gates, well, Bill Gates, too, but fix that, fix Bill, that. <laughs> Bill, Bill, uh, Clinton. like if I think, of, if I think back to when I was, I was going through it at that age, like watching it back now, it's appalling to me, like the horrific treatment that that woman experienced. And yet no one stood up for her. Right. And I just think about like all these bystander trainings we've done in colleges, like, what does it all mean when, you know, we continue to see horrific things in the news And so many people jump to protect abusers, right. Or racist people or sexist people. It's like, I, I, I guess I'm feeling incredibly, um, disillusioned today and lately as of late, you know? Yeah. I had a great conversation with our good friend, Dr. Rivera about bystander intervention and because my current institution uses uses bystander intervention as a framework for disrupting microaggressions, which is, in my opinion, completely inappropriate and problematic on so many levels. And Carmen was like, yeah, but even just the framing of being a bystander means that you have a choice to say, I'm just not going to give a fuck and walk away. Like, today I don't feel like it. And that's not what we need to be doing. Yeah. You know, like, right? Like, the fact that we even frame it as a bystander, like you're not engaged in it because it doesn't impact you. Every shitty thing impacts me. I just don't feel it because I have the privilege of not feeling it. Right. But it's still impacting me. It's just, yeah. So anyway. Wow. That's powerful for sure. Yeah. She's a smart one. Carmen. Oh yeah. I think she's she's brought that up before in one of our classes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a good point. 
Well, and I think it all leads back. I don't know if you ever watched Monica, her brilliant wife's TED talk on body sovereignty, right? Yes. And how we don't teach consent from an early age. And if we were to teach consent from an early age, then maybe we wouldn't have to have bystander interventions, right? Because there's yeah. accountability from a very early age about just like she mentioned, like we teach kids to share, right? So if we taught kids this information, this is why the CRT argument makes me laugh because I've heard some counter arguments where they're like, oh no, that's a graduate level conversation. Oh no, that has to do with the law. That's only happening in universities. You don't need to worry about it. It's not happening in the schools. And yet that's exactly where it should be happening, right? I actually, the counter argument is that we should be training teachers on this so that they can interrogate the things they're doing in their classroom so that their teaching style and their teaching pedagogy and philosophy is highly influenced by CRT, right? And, and pushing the counter narrative. And I think we talked about it. Was it the last time? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm actually like, hell yeah, let's teach it in elementary school, bro. I mean, I had a conversation, I said, I had a conversation with my six-year-old about why celebrating being white is not okay. Like what, what actually the construct of being white means. And, you know, we can celebrate being European and Scottish, which is part of our ethnic background, right? Like that's, there's heritage in that, but like white heritage is all about power and dominance inappropriately and taking and, and, and not healthy things and toxicity and, and so that's not a, something to celebrate. That's not something that we can, it's different than celebrating blackness. It's that, right. that it's a different thing. And so, but people want to compare and they just, they can't understand. So any uh, final parting thoughts before we wrap up today? Just did a big circle hug on my computer. Can we dedicate this episode to the young man who lost his life in Grand Rapids? Yes, let's dedicate the episode. Absolutely. To Patrick Leoyo, uh, Le- Leoya, Patrick Leoya, Leoya, yes, uh, yeah, he was uh, uh, executed. I guess I can't find yep. a better word to yeah. say by a police yeah. officer in Grand Rapids. Murdered. I haven't watched the video because I can't do that. Um, I don't need to see it to know that it happened. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, that's just it's tragic. It's just it's continued. This continued thing is just tragic, um, yeah. which leads me to, I do have a final thought because I was thinking about this because I, I sit in these conversations in academia and, and with well-intentioned white folks who always bring up the summer of 2020. They're like, you know, in the summer of 2020, we finally realized, and it's just like, holy shit, we've had 400 years of ethnic and racial based oppression and trauma in this country. And it took you seeing some shit on Instagram or whatever your social media of choice was of a a black man being executed publicly for you to say, and a couple times over the span of three months to say, and and, and a black woman, Oh, we have a racial problem. I should probably read a book. Right. (laughs) Like, like people talk about 20, the summer of 2020 as if it was this great racial reckoning. And I'm not downplaying what happened in the summer of 2020. It was tragic and horrible. That shit's been happening for centuries in public 
And it's yeah. now, you know, and I just, it frustrates me that it just, it, and it, and it's gotta be really heart, harmful and hurtful to folks of color to hear shit like that because it becomes like a joke to us. Yeah. I mean, like I actually get, um, like, I'm like, I don't want to hear that stupid shit. I just don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear your surprise. I don't want to like, you've lived such a sheltered life then that you've been, you've managed to exist in this world without knowing that that existed before. Come on. So I don't, I don't, I'm not going to give you fucking brownie points for saying, oh, I woke up and read Kendi's book on how not to be a racist. Oh, no, right? they bought the, the white woman's book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll not say. Yeah. 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 And so, and then complain about it, right? Because, you know, they're not fragile. No, no they wear that. They wear a, a, like a, like a little like badge of honor. I read the book. Okay. Yeah, I read the book. Look at, and I'm different now. Like, got it in my my bag. Here, I, I carry it with <laughs> me. Like, uh, it's in my bag. I learned through osmosis, right? Because they probably yeah. read one chapter of it. Um, it, it's it's interesting, for sure. Well, I appreciate the two of you. Thank you for filling my heart tonight with conversation and seeing your faces i love you both josh i hope you're i hope you don't have covid nope i don't either we'll see take another test josh maybe right now i might have missed my window i might have missed the window who knows i don't know yeah take the spit pcr oh yeah go take it i do the you know the one in the mouth okay Well, Tom, I love, I love our conversations. I love you. And I appreciate this space because I think it helps me process like some things that I'm like, that I truly think about. Um, and the disillusionment and the disheartenment that I have right now, I think is compounded by a lot of things. I mean, the, the pandemic, death, grief, all of those things but it just feels like we're spinning our wheels sometimes. And so I know for sure this podcast gives me um, like a space to like talk through these things, right. With people who are like-minded and who are doing good work. Um, Yeah. And I love you, Josh. You're my brother. And I want to just close out with there's Eric as a Chola. Erin was not a chola. Well, Joey looks she, just like her. Yeah, I just want to close with that. Yeah, I love it. Erin's going to love that. You're going to be like, Erin, I gave you a shout out on the podcast tonight. <laughs> it was on her grandma's fridge. <laughs> I was like, thanks. Somebody needs to switch out the pictures around here. <laughs> That's too funny. All right, y'all. Well, have a good night. And thank you, listeners, for being with us.